Oh, the end of the world is a really hot topic today. Have you noticed that? How many apocalyptic type movies and books have been produced just in the last decade? It's quite astounding. And so if Hollywood is any indication of where people are and what's going on in the minds of people, then people are really caught up with this whole end of the world kind of thinking. Whether it's by aliens or asteroids or floods or killer viruses or lethal machines or mutant creatures or nuclear holocaust, it is all about final destruction. But it, always, it hasn't always been this way. Wikipedia lists only four apocalyptic movies before 1950. But since the year 2000, 140 movies have been about the end of the world. It's just a matter of how's it going to be destroyed. 140 movies about the end of the world, whether it's Denzel Washington's Book of Eli or Mad Max or Resident Evil and just on and 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 on. But today, we're going to move it from Hollywood to the Holy Word. And we're going to get God's take on this whole thing. We're going to get God's take on this whole thing because here's what's about to happen. Daniel chapter 7 is a hinge chapter or a transition chapter. The first six chapters we've dug into were narrative. This chapter turns us to the final six chapters that are prophetic and apocalyptic. And I need to say something before we read it. Understand the Bible writers will sometimes do this. Daniel is actually going to hit the rewind button and jump back to places we've already been but give us greater detail than he shared with us so far because he's gonna share with us his own personal vision God gave him. The first six chapters, he's been interpreting the dreams and visions of pagan kings, but he didn't mention already back there, he had a vision from God. He's gonna give us the details. Turn with me to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven, you follow along as I begin reading in verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Remember, he was way back there. We've already, we've been done with him. First year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. 
It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then. Because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting Dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, and I asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head. And about the other horn which came up before which three fell. Namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words. Whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints. And prevailing against them until The ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. Ten horns or ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the most High shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court 
shall be seated. And they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the most high. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my Thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. The word of the Lord and all God's people said. Now I am so glad you came today because I am going to explain all of that. (laughs) Not. I'm not. Not. But that doesn't mean there's nothing we can learn from this. Oh my goodness, there's a reason we have it in Scripture. Here's the first thing What can we take away from Daniel's vision that might help us as Americans today in our country? What can we take away that could help us? And keep this in mind, it's not a cop-out for me to say I'm not gonna explain all of it. If you think about this, we actually understand more of it today than Daniel even did. So when God showed it to Daniel, you've gotta understand it was never for the purpose of understanding all the details of it. It had a purpose and it still has a purpose for us even if we still don't fully understand all of it. We're ahead of Daniel in history. What's the first takeaway? Here's the first thing. Number one, it is not wrong to be troubled and even terrified at times by all the evil that is in our world today. You see, whether or not you understand verses one to eight in detail or not, they are honestly quite terrifying. It's terrifying, and they were meant to be. Monsters or beasts are being described that are dreadful, terrible, and have exceedingly great power. And in the face of their destruction, Daniel is piling up words like devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling underfoot. And by the time Daniel was writing this account, you need to understand that for the average Jew, the sea or ocean was considered a dangerous place and was a symbol of chaos and evil. So we've got in verses two to three, these monsters coming up out of the sea. This vision would have been the apex of horror for Daniel as he saw this. You ever feel that way today? When you watch the news? When you just are made aware of all that's going. You ever have moments of horror? How could people do that? Look how bad things have gotten. This is... And doesn't it feel like at times that this world is out of control? No one's at the helm. No one's in charge. This is mayhem, random, chaos, filled with just crashing against the shores and rocks of unbelievable evil. Most commentators agree that these monsters represent earthly kingdoms or empires, most of whom have already come and gone, like Babylon, Medo-Persia, 
Greece, the leopard with the four wings represents Alexander the Great that just with such speed conquered the entire world before he was 33 years old. He had a, he had a small army that was unbelievable in what they could do with lightning speed. And then Rome. But they represent not just kingdoms that have come and gone. They simply represent the destruction and confusion of any, any earthly kingdom that is being ruled by men and women. Doesn't matter how good you think someone is, they're human beings. And the potential for them to go off the rails and to destroy themselves and others is great. So what was Daniel's response to seeing all this? I think this is gonna encourage some of you because this, this has been one of those series where I'm, according to God's word, trying to push you into the darkness. Let's get out there. If you've been scared, this is gonna encourage you. This is Daniel, courageous Daniel, who's already spent a night in a lion's den and has faced all kinds of life-threatening situations. And yet he tells us, Two times in this passage, he was terrified, terrified. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me. That Hebrew word for grieved is a word that means to be, to be afflicted and made uneasy and anxious, anxious, uneasy, anxious, afflicted. And the word for troubled right there is a word in the Hebrew that means terrified, alarmed, horrified by what you're seeing and sensing. Jump down to verse 28. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. Same Hebrew word that means terrified, alarmed, horrified. And then he adds this and my countenance changed. Do you know what that Hebrew word is, literally? To have the color completely drained from your face because of physical or emotional distress. He's saying, I went white as a sheet. So you're in good company if you are regularly horrified by some of all what's going on in the world. You're in good company. In fact, I would say this to you. Do not allow exposure to evil through media to actually cause you to become numb. I hope it still terrifies you at points where you say, I can't believe people are doing this. I can't, but horrified, terrified, this was Daniel. This was Daniel's response. Because see, folks, verses, eight, verses one to eight were meant to scare us and remind us that every earthly kingdom is a sinful one that's being run and ruled by men and women so that it always has the potential and usually at some point does go off the rails to its own destruction or the destruction of others around it and it's as if Daniel wants us to do this incorporate incorporate the doctrine of total depravity into our politics don't hear me saying politics don't matter don't hear me saying don't vote don't hear me saying 
don't get involved. I'm so grateful for those of you in our church family that are involved in office and politics. Yes, that's being salt, that's being light. But you better never lose sight of the total depravity that's in politics because why? People are in politics, men and women. The best man, best woman is still a man or woman at best. Sinful, sinful. You see, Brad, what's your point? Here's my point. Verses one to eight should keep us from being so naive about our human history. Look at the history of of, of humanity. When you say it was not that long ago, it was within our century that the Germans did what they did to the Jews and the gypsies and the handicapped. We don't have to reach back 800 years and I'm not picking on Germans if you're here. Sprechen Sie Deutsch, love you. You're no greater sinner than us. It's just an example of this is what people have the capacity to do when they have authority and rule. Oh, don't be so naive as you consider human history or so gullible as to think some kind of new regime or new political party or some world leader is gonna bring about cosmic therapy and ultimate peace on earth. It's not gonna happen. Get involved, but don't put your hope there. And then don't be so surprised when someone you thought well of or love or had been grateful for goes off the rails. Just one more example of why we all need a savior, Jesus. We don't need political leaders or men and women in places of power to rescue us. They can't. They can't. They do keep things from being as chaotic as they would be. God's a God of order and God is a God of civil government. But that civil government is always being run by depraved human beings. So I hope this makes you feel a little better because this has been, I've been pushing you to be bold and step. It's like, oh, okay. It's okay to be troubled and even terrified by all the evil in our world. Yes, but stay with me. Don't settle into that and say, Okay, I'll just be troubled and terrified. No, don't, don't get a hold of that unless you get a hold of my second point. You gotta have the second point. It's not wrong to be troubled and terrified by so much evil, and it's not right. It's not right to think that God is not on his throne and will not put an end, will not put an end to all of this evil. You gotta get a hold of that as well. Otherwise, this troubling and moments of being terrified will turn into paralyzed, where you just will do what I'm asking you not to do. You'll try to find a piece of land where you and three other families, Christians, can have houses, and you'll just try to find a street with all Christians, and you'll pull back and you'll isolate and insulate because you'll be terrified and paralyzed by it. You gotta know that God is on the throne. Let me, now let me show you what I'm talking about and the striking way that Daniel introduces this thought to us because it's quite abrupt. I want you to notice from verse eight to verse nine how abrupt this is. There's no smooth transition between verse eight and verse nine. It's an abrupt transition from the chaos and destruction of earthly kingdoms to a breathtaking throne room that is also a courtroom where the only just 
judge who has ever lived will make all things right. Look at it again, beginning in verse nine. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came. Now note this, this is pretty scary too, right? When our world does ever get around to giving us any notion or thought about God, it's usually he's just a tottering little grandfather. (laughs) Doesn't half know what's going on, but he's good and he's loving. Not much power, not much wisdom. We don't get pictures of God like that in the Bible. This is also a scene that should strike fear in you. Oh my goodness. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is God. Fiery streams, fiery wheel. A thousand thousands ministered before him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. What 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 is God doing for Daniel and for us right here? I'll tell you what he's doing. It's as if this transition from verse eight to nine is saying, don't get all worked up about the little horn and his pompous little mouth. Feast and fix your eyes on this. The one true, living, awesome, holy, just, wise, powerful God that sits at the helm of the universe. This is not chaos. This is not random. Someone is very much at home and will make all things right. But here's what I think is interesting. Daniel, in a sense, gives us a split screen vision. Here's how I want you to picture this chapter. It's not that the horrors of devouring and trampling and breaking and fears of earthly kingdom has closed out and that scene goes dark and now we get this. Here's how I want you to consider this. He did it like this. Split screen view, there's still the raging of all this that is plenty of reason to be terrified while at the same time you see this. They are both happening at the same time. Both are real and both are present with us. That's how we live our lives today still. That's what was true for Daniel, it's still true for us. Both, both. See, if you don't fix and feast your eyes on that top screen and all you're getting is CNN news and the internet and blogs and just constant details of the horrors of evil, you will not be able to persevere in trials and suffering and persecution. Now here's the problem. I don't need to help you on Sundays know the horrors of evil. The world does that. It serves it up regularly. The news keeps you more aware of it than I wish. Here's the problem. How do you get this top screen in view? How do you keep this in view? There is no other way to keep the throne room 
courtroom, awesome, fearful power and reality of God in view without soaking in chapters like Daniel 7 and others. That's why, folks, as your shepherd, pastor, I love you. It's not legalism that I beg you to read your Bibles. It's not let's check off some boxes because if I read my Bible today, I won't have an accident on the interstate. He'll bless me real good. Oh, oh, folks, it's so much more important than that. If you're not reading your Bible and keeping the throne room scene and the reality of who's in control right now at the same time as horrors and evil take place, you will curl up in a little fetal position and you will not be terrified and troubled, you will be paralyzed. And you will start making really bad decisions as to what you think you should or should not do with your life while he leaves you here on the earth. Gotta have it. I've gotta have it. I'm not that pastor that doesn't wanna have any idea what's going on. I wanna be aware. But let me be honest with you. I don't think I need daily podcasts of the latest horrible thing that's about to be passed by legislation or some state that's doing to be aware. Some of you stay so up to speed with the horrors of our world and you don't spend time here. Is it any wonder you're as discouraged and fearful and weak and depressed as you are? You gotta have this. This is essential. I get down, I get scared. Here's the difference. Make sure whenever you're reading your Bible, make a note of what is it saying and not saying. So this is very encouraging. We've got a split screen view that says all this horror and evil is raging in, in the earth. And yet God is ruling and is on his throne at the same time. But notice this chapter said the saints will be given over at times in history to some of these horrible people and will actually begin to prevail against them. God didn't promise that we would win every battle. God didn't promise he would insulate us from pain or suffering. The passage doesn't teach the people of God will never experience pain. It teaches the people of God never need to panic. It doesn't say there's not a place to be fearful. It shows us there's no reason to be frantic. Pain, yes. Panic, no. Fears, yes. Frantic, no. Let me ask you, if you drew a line down the, down the column of your life, where you been living? If you're over here with fears, welcome. You stand with Daniel, who was quite a courageous man. If you're over here saying there's horrible evil, no problem. If you're over here saying, I experience pain and suffering as a child of God, you're in the right column. But if you're over here being driven by panic and frantic that causes you to make thoughtless, careless decisions as to what you think you can and cannot do with your life, let me encourage you, get back over here. You say, Brad, how? I know no other way. Oh man, this reorients me. There are days that I just feel a heavy, dark cloud. I'm, 
I'm a dad, I have five kids, I hope I'll have grandkids one day. I'm a friend, I have dear friends. I'm a pastor, I love all of you. I get afraid for you and for all of us with the world. What's gonna keep me from just beginning to be paralyzed and lose heart? It's where you fix your eyes, folks. It's your choice. Notice, he's giving us a split screen view and saying, you gotta look at this. Don't pretend this isn't happening, but you don't have to obsess over this. You don't have to obsess, podcast your way through life if you're not reading God's word. Think about Hebrews 12. We run this race, all right? It's a race and it's not easy, it's hard. Laying aside every sin and the weight which, which slows us down, where are our eyes? Fixing our eyes on, say it, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. You're not the first. We are Christ followers. He endured hostility, and he said we would too. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Oh, this is important. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When you lose sight of Jesus and you lose sight of the throne room and you lose sight of the split view of what's going on in our world, you're more than tired. Soul weary. You'll quit. You'll give up. You'll just start going through the motions. You'll become numb. You'll insulate yourself. You'll make some really bad decisions as to what you think you can and cannot do. You see, the challenge of Daniel 7 is not to identify all these monsters and figure out exactly who they are. The challenge of Daniel 7 is to think in our culture right now, how can I keep my eyes fixed on more than right here, right now. How can I keep the split view? Let me give you a third solid takeaway, especially since this is prophetic and apocalyptic literature. Let me tell you sadly what I've seen with this kind of literature among Christians largely. And our church is not the worst at all because you have a pastor that just doesn't go there or stir it up or encourage you to be this way. But Christianity at large, here's what I see with apocalyptic and prophetic literature. Number three, it's not wise to focus on knowing more about the future without knowing the one who holds the future. Trust me, you don't want to know any more details about what any of this means unless you really know God. We got Christians going nuts trying to set dates and they're always wrong, and identify monsters and the Antichrist, trust me, it ain't Hillary, <laughs> and it's not Trump. I mean, we, whole books have been written, 88 reasons why Christ is returning in 1988. Well, how'd that work out? It's just stop setting dates, stop trying to identify monsters, stop trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, and get 
to know God. One thing's clear. This is terrifying. One thing's clear. Evil is powerful. One thing's clear. We will actually suffer some. Better know God. I better know God. We need more Christians instead of trying to set dates, identify monsters, and figure out who the Antichrist is. Who? Oh my goodness, how we need more Christians who are growing in their knowledge of God. I'm not saying you know about him. You know him. There's a pronoun that got used through the book of Daniel a lot. My God. We're living in days and we're heading into some ahead. If he's not your God and it's not personal and you don't know him and you don't have a record of his faithfulness to you, you will not do well. He's got to be your God. You won't be able to ride on the heels of your parents or your grandparents or your small group leader or your pastor. It won't be enough to just come to church and hear a good sermon, sing some songs and head back out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, not picking up your Bible, not sitting alone with him, not praying, not worshiping him, not knowing him, not memorizing memorizing some key passages, not spending time with other believers at close range who are trying to finish well, you won't make it. You'll just curl up in fear. These are the days to know God. Grow in your knowledge of God and your love for God that would compel you to risk to tell others about God. That's what we need. Unbelievers don't need to be told, now this monster is Babylon, this is Russia, this is the Czech Republic, this is London, whatever. That doesn't help them. They need to know God who made them in his image and loved them enough to send his son to solve their biggest problem so that they can go through these trials and spend eternity with him. They need to know God. But you can't talk to someone about someone you don't know well yourself. Let me help you here. You won't find a single verse in the New Testament commanding Christians to try to identify the, the Antichrist and be looking for him. You find all kinds of verses that push us to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who you should be looking for. Living with anticipation, living expectantly because you're engaged. You're engaged, you're engaged. He gave you the, the pledge of his Holy Spirit. That word in the Greek literally means engagement, down payment. You've got his spirit now and he's preparing a place for you. You have a bridegroom who loves you and you're living expectantly and it causes you to live loose to the things of the world. You're not stupid with your money. You don't keep acting like you're gonna be here forever because you're not. You recognize you're an alien, stranger, pilgrim, exile. And so you start living for what matters most with a hopefulness, he's coming. I don't know when, don't ask me to set a date, I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to be ready. I'm supposed to be ready and I'm supposed to be helping get other people ready. I wanna be ready and I wanna help other people get ready. Changes how you live. Larry Osborne says it so well in his excellent book, Thriving in Babylon. He says, quote, for 2,000 years, brilliant and godly Bible scholars have carefully studied scripture and come up with theories and predictions that made a ton of sense at the time, but now seem laughable. 
That's why I stopped making end time predictions. I've quit trying to explain what I don't understand. I know Jesus is coming back. But as to exactly when and how he will work out all the nitty gritty details, I'm a bit foggy. I love what he says next. So I've traded in my spot on the programming committee for a place on the welcoming committee. I like that. God doesn't need any of us on the programming committee. He's got all the details figured out. We're on the welcoming committee and we wanna get others ready to welcome our king to come and set up the new heaven and new earth. And there's one reason why he delays his return. One, not because he's scrambling with the archangels to get this thing all put together. No, he delays his return so that others can be rescued with the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's a gracious God. He said it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. People need Jesus. You have what they need. So don't miss the obvious right here. I want to move you even further away from, look at the end of his quote. I love the last sentence. He says, whenever we turn the bulk of our attention to deciphering the obscure, we tend to miss the obvious. Let me move you further away from this. There is a lot in here that's obscure. Yeah. Don't miss the obvious. Don't miss the obvious in Daniel chapter seven. What is so obvious, once again, he sandwiches scary monsters and then more details about scary monsters with horns and pompous mouths. Right in between there is a reminder that God is in control of who is in control and he assures us that he's just and will make all th the books are going to be opened. There's going to be a courtroom and he will make all things right. That's the obvious takeaway when you think things aren't right, things aren't just. When will, be this, when will this be made right? It will. It will. Here's what's obvious in the book of Daniel, whether you look at Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. When you don't know God, you won't have courage and you won't risk anything to tell others about God. Rather, your world will become a very small, selfish, fearful world with little or no thoughts of God. That's why one of my favorite verses in all the book of Daniel, I'm gonna reach ahead where we're not going and grab it, Daniel 11.32b says this, but the people who know, oh, look at the pronoun, their God. Oh, we got all kinds of Christians when someone calls them and does a survey, they claim to be a Christian. All kinds of Americans, I'm sorry. Americans, high percentage still say they're a Christian. It's a lie. They're not, or this nation would look different. The people who know their God their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Whew. You gotta know him though or you won't be strong. 
You got to know him or you won't risk. You say, what's the word exploit mean? Webster's defines exploit as an act or a deed that is brilliant and heroic. The people who know their God will gain strength and do great exploits. You'll take a risk. You'll do something that'll cause people to say, why would you do that? Why would you go there? Why would you give away that much money? Why would you hold so loosely to things of the world? Why would you lay down your life? Why would you be willing to be abused? Why do you forgive? Why do you let things go? Why don't you hold a grudge? What is up with you? I have a God. He's my God. It enables me to be strong and to do great exploits. And that leads to my final point because none of this will make sense to you on a human level unless you're gripped by my final point and it's this. You are no fool if you choose to live and give your life for the one who already gave his life for you. Whoo! You gotta, you gotta have that. But when you have that, oh, he gave his life for me. He solved my biggest problem. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 13 again. I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now picture this, with all this bloody, violent noise of earthly kingdoms and evil raging, and the blinding, fiery, radiant, breathtaking throne room scene of God the Father, we've got the Son of Man coming into view. Who are we talking about? Who is this in verse 13? Jesus. Say it louder. Jesus. Once again, we've got Jesus showing up in the book of Daniel, an Old Testament book, because this book is all about Jesus. He's the star. He's the main character. He's constantly on stage. Here's, here's what I think is interesting. You say, how do you know this is Jesus? This title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite name for himself. Were you ever, are you ever puzzled when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You say, Jesus keeps saying the Son of Man. Why didn't he say the Son of God? That would have been more clear. The Son of God. He says the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. The son, 81 times in the Gospels, he refers to himself as Son of Man. Here's what you need to understand. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was referring to Daniel 7 and saying, that passage is talking about me. I am the promised Messiah. I am the sent one. I am the hope of salvation for the nations. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. So I get so tired of people saying, Jesus never claimed to be God. He would not have been killed had he not. The Jews knew what he was saying. And they said, that's blasphemy. This title, Son of Man, his claiming it is what sent him to the cross. You realize that? Jump to Matthew 26 with me quickly. Let me show you his illegal trial that took place in the middle of the night with the Jewish leaders before Caiaphas, the high priest. Matthew chapter 26, and jump in at verse 62. Matthew 26, verse 62. And the high priest rose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, it 
is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he spoke in blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. Jesus was claiming that Daniel 7 was talking about him, his incarnation, his glorious ascension, his second coming, and his eternal kingdom that he has been given by his father. And they knew it. And it sent him to the cross for us, to become sin for us, to have six hours of fiery hell and God's wrath distilled down into one place as he became sin for us and God poured out his wrath on him so that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he didn't just die for us. He died for others. That's why the son of man has called us to tell the sons of men all over the world about the true king of kings. Jump over to Matthew 28 since you're in Matthew. The reason we go right here into our own counties and over into southern Indiana and over into Ohio and to the world, the reason this church would spend money and risk the lives of some of our own people to go to an unengaged people group in a country where they say it's illegal here to come and tell us about Jesus. Why would we do that? Because the Son of Man has told us to go to all the nations. And here's the good news. We go with confidence, not wondering, will anybody respond? We know they will because the Father has given the nations as an inheritance to his Son so that people will come from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. But now here's the thing that's mind-blowing. God actually intends to use us as the means to proclaim this good news. You say, you're kidding me, no? He's used angels before, I wish he'd do it now. He thought otherwise. He told us to go. Look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Then Jesus came after his resurrection and spoke to the disciples saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. And let me help you here. In the Greek, it really is as you are going. You don't need to do something different. Some of you, God may call you to stop what you're doing and go to another country. But don't sit here and think, I hope a few people do that. No, here's what I want every single person listening who's a child of God to hear. He said, as you are going, into that pharmaceutical sales rep company, into that courtroom, into that campus, onto that neighborhood, into that gym, as you are going, doing what you do anyway to make a living and to live life and go to the doctor. As you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Oh, some good news here. And you say, but I'm scared. I feel inadequate. I feel, I, I feel like, no, I can't do this. Good news. Lo, I am with you always. 
even when it gets harder, even when some of these monsters really kick in, even to the end of the age. We're not alone. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And the Father's on his throne even now and he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us each other. He's given us direct access to the throne. He's given us his word. And that's why on purpose we planned this Friday night Greater Still Conference to fall right on the heels of the end of this Thriving in Babylon series. Oh, I want you to come, come Friday. Unless you already registered, don't bring the kids. But come, we're gonna worship the true king of king. We're gonna pray together for the nations and how God might use us in America and beyond. And we're gonna hear and learn more about how might God use me either to go or to be a good sender and prayer. All of us, these are the last days. It's time to know God and to live for what matters most. And when you know that the ancient of days is your judge and that there's no condemnation now for you, when he opens that book, your name's in the Lamb's book of life. And when you know that the son of man stood in your place and is your savior, then you can say to this dark world, let whatever you want to bring come. I will still trust God who's on his throne and gave me his son as my savior. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this split view that we get. We get plenty of the raging of our world from the news, but oh, without your word, we would not have this top view of what is going on. Thank you. May we be like Daniel eleven thirty two, 32, the people who know their God, who will stand firm and do great exploits in our weakness, in our weakness, and you'll be strong. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.